have to do this entire thing um, fueled by fizzy pop, so I'm sorry about that. I do see it's a disgusting habit. Uh, I'm too old to drink it now. I should be drinking tea or something. Can't drink it, can't even bear the smell of tea. Um, and at some point, they're gonna make me give back my passport over that, because now Brexit's happening. That's how they measure it, I'm afraid. That's the rules. <laughs> Don't like tea, off at the border. Um, but it's too bad. Am I partially, what's the question? Is that you too? Do you also hate tea? The tea resistance begins here, Cornwall. Come on, this is where it starts. Yes, come on, here it is. I don't feel like you're all on side with the tea resistance, but it's good. considering how much you freaking care about which way people put jam on a scone, I think you could really come on side with anti-tea. Come on, you've got this. Come on. Oh, because I'm from the Midlands, so I'm pikey and I say it wrong. <laughs> Fair enough, mate. All right then. Jeez, Cornwall, you're a bit snappy today. My God, this is where it all comes out. Scrappy, scrappy Cornwall, look at you go. Um, so, oh, Hayley. Oh, that's my friend. Hey, everyone. Everyone say hey. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to talk to you. Well, I'll give you a, shall I give you like an example version? And then you can see if you like it. And, well, you've got no choice now. That's what's going to happen. And then you can choose what you're going to have for the rest of the hour. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah. Cool. Let's do that then. So um, a few years ago, um, I made a documentary for Radio 4. Um, and shall we do that? No, because I did that on Friday. And so the people who already saw that, let's do a different opening, shall we? Shall we? Let's do... That's a, you can hear that one later. How about that? Let's do. Oh, so exciting. So you should get different material and then you can pick up the rest on that and then you get good value for money. You like that Cornwall, don't pretend. <laughs> don't pretend you don't, you care about it. So, um, well, let's look at one of the great Greek comedies, shall we? Because I just translated a bit of um, Aristophanes' Ecclesia Zuzai, which I can say drunk. Um, that's my one great, that's not my one great achievement, my one, my one great achievement is that I can say Thesmophoria Zeusai, also when drunk, uh, which is the women of the Thesmophoria, if you're ever wondering. It's an old play, it doesn't often get performed. Um, but a few years ago, um, uh, there was what I think is one of the most interesting examples of a, an idea from the ancient world making it right through to the modern world, almost entirely unchanged. An idea which begins in comedy and in crazy, messed up, scabrous, scatological comedy at that into the real world and things go through unchanged. And one of the great comedies of the ancient world, one of the great comedians of the ancient world, and really I would know, I was a stand-up comedian for 12 years, so I genuinely, I claim expertise on very few things, but comedy is one of them, um, is Aristophanes, right? The fifth century Greek playwright. And he wrote the most incredible breadth of comedy. He created um, a huge number of comedies. We don't have that many of them now, but we've still got plenty. And three of his comedies, Ecclesia Zuzai, Thesmophoria Zuzai and Lysistrater, focus on what would happen if women decided that the lives that they had weren't good enough. I don't know why it's come into my mind this week, um, <laughs> but uh, for some reason I thought we should discuss what happens when women decide that men are screwing everything up and they should take power for themselves. It's just, seems, I don't know, it's just entered my mind. So, in the Lysistrata, which is the best of these three plays, um, in the Lysistrata, um, this is the plot, right? And then you're gonna see what happens as it changes over time, yes? Yes, look at you, I'm nearly on side. Well, I'll take that, the near is what I'll get. So, uh, the Lysistra is the most extraordinary um, suggestion, which is women don't have a vote in ancient Athens, right? We talk about ancient Athens, and rightly, as a sort of um, pinnacle of democracy, right? Of, of interactive democracy and participatory democracy. Am I being heckled by farming machinery or a pipe? It's the heating. It's the heating. No, fair enough, are you all cold? Can we turn? Oh, it gets cold if it goes off. See, look at you all confident. Oh, yeah, no, we're fine. You're too hot. It has You're being choked to death. God, imagine if you died during this show. And I'd be like, yeah, they were collapsing in the aisles. It was amazing. I go back to London and, you know, I would just, I would really weaponize your death to make me look good. I kind of feel bad about that now. But yet we all know it would happen, don't we? We all just don't look at you all. You're like, yeah, she would do that. I would do that. Yeah, I once watched somebody fall off a chair watching, I can't remember who it was, Hal Crutton done, I think. And it was like, I feel really bad for you that you might have kind of fractured some really important lower spine. But at the same time, you literally fell off a chair. That's a great, no, nothing, sorry, sorry. So in the Lysistrata, where were we? Democracy is an entirely male preserve in fifth century Athens, right? It is a direct democracy, which is obviously very different from what we have now. What we have now is representative democracy, right? We go and vote for somebody, if you vote, which I hope you do, um, but you might not, the person you vote for might not get in, right? You might vote for a candidate who's never successful, depending on where you live. Your views might stay the same for your whole life, and you might still never successfully vote for a candidate in an election, right? But 
for the Athenians, it is a different matter. They go to a place called the Pnyx. It is a hill. It's not very far from uh, where the Parthenon is still now. And they vote like this. You, it's an entirely participatory democracy, one man, one vote. But when I say one man, I'm not euphemizing for one human. I mean one man, right? Because women aren't allowed. And um, anyone who was born not in Greece isn't allowed, even if they're not slaves, even if they are metics, uh, is the word in Greek, metoikoi, uh, meaning a resident alien, a resident foreigner. They're not allowed to vote. It's not the case that, as now, for example, if I moved to here, I would get to vote for an MP in this area. Not the case in ancient Athens. You have to be a born Athenian citizen, i.e. Athenian father and uh, daughter of Athenian father mother. Does that make sense? Good. So it actually is really hot here. Um, so this is the world's most lesbian-esque striptease you're ever going to see, just in case you're wondering. Um, genuinely the least thrilling thing that's ever happened in the history of the North Cornwall Book Festival is me removing clothes. Sort of disappointing, isn't it? I'm not as young as I was. Um, why was I telling you this? We were doing sex comedy from uh, Aristophanes, so it feels like we should kind of go that way. But, um, uh, so democracy, really? So democracy is an entirely male preserve, right? It's direct. Men get to vote. When they go to war, Remember a few years ago when um, Michael Moore, the great um, American polemicist, made a film called Fahrenheit 9-11, and he interviewed congressmen and women who's, who had voted in favor of the Second Iraq War. And only one, I think, or maybe two, had a serving of the people who voted in favor of the war had a son who, or daughter, but in this instance they were both sons, um, who served in that conflict. So people were voting to send other people's kids to war, but not their own. Like, that isn't true in Athens. It has many failings, not least the complete exclusion of women, but at least people are voting for the thing that they're going to do themselves. They're not just voting for other people's kids' lives to be destroyed. I merely mention it. Um, so in the Lysistrata, the Athenians have been at war at this point. The Peloponnesian War, a great 30-year conflict, uh, which pretty much demolishes Athens in the latter part of the 5th century BCE. So it begins in 431 BCE. We have a fantastic document of it in Thucydides. I can't necessarily recommend that you read Thucydides. He's both difficult and often boring. But... Nonetheless, he survives the war, lives through the war, and therefore tells us loads about the war. And he survives the plague at the start of the war. I know, he got plague and survived plague, which is why we know the symptoms of the plague, which demolishes Athens in 430, the winter of 430-429, right? It's because Thucydides has it and survives it, which is why when I wrote The Children of Jocasta, which is the novel I wrote last, which is set in Thebes, I stole all the symptoms from Thucydides. No one's ever found me out. So, he's not gonna sue now, is he? He's been dead for millennia. So, really, we've got to focus, otherwise there's gonna be no time to do anything. So, Aristophanes has had enough of the war being um, ruinous and, and so difficult and, um, and entirely destructive to Athens' best interests. He has had enough of this. And so he creates a fantasy comedy in Lysistrata in which women finally decide they've had enough. Right? So what happens is that the play begins with Lysistrata, who is an Athenian woman, summoning together her sisters from across Greece. So Lampeto from Sparta, that's the south, which Athens is at war with in the Peloponnesian War. Uh, she gets uh, women from Corinth, a woman called Myrony, her friends, uh, Colonicae, and they all come together and they make a secret pledge. It's the very best kind of pledge. They make a secret pledge that what they will do is, is one course of action, which means that the men will definitely stop the war. And they all agree that this is what they want. And so they sacrifice. But because it's a comedy, they don't sacrifice an animal. They sacrifice a wineskin. Do you see what's happening here? Instead of blood flowing out, red wine flows out and they all drink it. Hooray! Um, it's a comedy. Everyone's pissed. Hooray! And so the pledge that they make to one another, and it's a source of great trauma when they realise what they've agreed to, the pledge that they make is to refuse to have sex with their husbands or boyfriends until the men refuse to be at war anymore. Right? They will quite literally not make love until the men stop making war. Right? And the women are all outraged that they've been kind of gulled into accepting this because they are all massive nymphomaniacs, because it is a comedy, right? <laughs> and it would be not funny if the women were like, yeah, great, I don't have to have sex. So instead, the women are like, I must have sex with him when he gets back the whole way through. And the men are desperate because they've just got back from the battlefield and they want their women. And so you have this, much hilarity ensues. There is a scene, a really iconic scene, um, where one of them sort of represents all of the sex strike. One of the women welcomes her husband home 
Uh, I think his name is Canisius. Um, and uh, she welcomes her husband home and she sort of makes him believe that they'll have sex. And she's like, I've just got to go and get my nicest nightie. I've just got to go and improve the bedding. I've just got to go and do this. I've just got... And by this point, he's desperate. I should tell you, all male characters in Greek comedy have massive stick-on leather phalluses. <laughs> in case this didn't sound like you would know he was keen, you would definitely know that he was keen. He's got a massive stick-on leather phallus. That's true even in the scenes where people aren't having sex. That's just part of Greek comedy. Not everything translates to the modern day. It's just how it is. Although I I sometimes think that would work. I think Mark Ravenhill did it. it would really, anyway, it doesn't matter. We haven't got time to go down the path of what would happen if Mark Ravenhill reworked Aristophanes for a modern audience. I really didn't think I'd got the oxygen to get to the end of that sentence, Matilda. <laughs> it's astonishing to me that it did. And I was kind of disappointed when it turned out the last word was Aristophanes, which is quite long, but there it is. Um, so, though, um, they, they, she teases her husband, pretends they're going to have sex. Eventually, she runs away. He is desperate for sex. She is desperate for sex. The older women don't take part in the sex strike because there's no point. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> I'm telling you what happens in the play. So they occupy the Acropolis, which is where the treasure is, where the money is that they pay for the warships, amongst other things. The women occupy the Acropolis. Um, the old men chorus turn up and say they're going to burn them out. They threaten to set fire to the place and singe their pubic hair. Um, it's Aristophanes. This kind of thing happens all the time. It's, there's no point wishing I would stop it. It's in Aristophanes. It's culture. Um, <laughs> And so um, the men are so miserable because they can't get enough money to buy warships and because the old women are so cross with them and because their wives won't sleep with them that eventually they do the only appropriate thing, which is to say, fair enough, we agree, the war is over and the play ends with everybody being happy and reunited because that's how comedy works, right? Isn't that delightful? Yes, it is. So here's the thing. You could have performed that play the exact same way for 2,300 years until 100 years ago in this country and a little bit sooner in New Zealand and Australia when women got the vote, right? And then it changes, right? Because the whole joke is predicated on what would happen if women took power given that they don't have any political power. That's the whole point of the joke, right? It's just the same story forever. And then things start to change. So what happens is that when we get to, for example, a few years ago, um, and it's a sentence you hardly ever get to say out loud, so I, I like to really relish it when it comes along. A few years ago, Belgium entered the record books. Um, <laughs> what? I'm partially Belgian. It's big news for me. And, and it's, gonna, it's being destroyed right now by Northern Ireland. The frick, ah. Belgium entered the record books because it went for longer than any other country in the modern Western world without a functioning government. Go Belgium! <laughs> and because it's Belgium and there's like 20 people there, everybody was just like, oh yeah, you know, we thought maybe we should kind of have some sort of government, but it's, it's been a year now, hasn't it? Maybe we should just push through. And you're like, what are you doing, Belgium? This is such a uniquely Belgian, well, it turns out not. But anyway, it was a very Belgian thing to do. And it just dragged on and on and on. And it was basically a dispute about language. Well, it was a dispute about culture disguised as a dispute about language because the candidate, you probably don't need to know about Belgian politics, do you? Are you do you care at all? No. The man they were voting for didn't speak Flemish. And if you live in the north, which is where my family is from, that's the same as my grandmother. And this is an absolutely true story. My grandmother, during the war, yes, the Second World War, um, she was liberated by, by my grandfather at the end, not a euphemism bracket. Well, also a euphemism. That's how my dad happened. But um, <laughs> my grandmother went to Brussels, which is technically in the north. It's technically in Florida, but anyway, it's on the border. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but their first language is theoretic. It doesn't matter. So she went to Brussels and she asked a guard at the train station for the train back to Maldrechem, which is where she was from. And she asked him in Flemish and he replied in French. And that is the same if you are Flemish and in the 1940s as being slapped in the face. And thenceforth, she only ever referred to people from the south of Belgium as, and I quote, them bloody walloons <laughs> for her accent magnificently was Birmingham Belgium which is a very rare combination um, and she would never go back she lived for more than 50 years and she would never go back to the south of Belgium which remind yourselves is approximately 40 meters away from the north of Belgium at any given point in the country she just wouldn't go now we thought we might go to Luxembourg for the day, two near them bloody walloons. Okay, fine. That's how strongly they felt about it. So you can imagine how difficult it was to get a political resolution to the issues of who was president of Belgium. And so, uh, Prime Minister of Belgium, but they have a king. Um, and so, uh, this, eventually, the deadlock is broken. And the deadlock is broken after a woman, a very sensible Belgian senator, a woman named Marlena Temmerman, finally cracks and goes on record and says, this is absolutely absurd. Why don't the sexual partners of the people who won't compromise just go on a sex strike until they stop it? Right? 
And everybody went, oh, how hilarious, those quirky Belgians. And it is a quirky Belgian thing to say. But number one, see how the joke has changed, because not everybody involved in this story was heterosexual and not all the people with power were men. In fact, the person who wasn't getting voted into power is a gay man. And so the issue of, of their wives suddenly becomes very different. You realise that the world has become more diverse, and she had referenced that. But more relevantly, and perhaps more interestingly, is that by day, Marlene Temmerman, Belgian senator, by some other days, a doctor of reproductive health, an award-winning doctor of reproductive health. Right? She had spent time in Kenya earlier this century, and she had been there when they too had a political deadlock which could not be resolved. And in that instance, the wives, for it was all wives, of the men, for it was all men who wouldn't compromise, went on a sex strike. And the deadlock was broken in less than a week. <laughs> Magnificently, there's a, a sort of urban myth that was doing the rounds at the time, which I long to be true. These men's wives paid their prostitutes not to have sex with them either. <laughs> Isn't that a great gig? I myself have not had sex with literally billions of people. If I was getting like a quid for each of those, I would be rolling in it by now. I, I, I'm very much aiming to monetize my not having sex with people. I really think I could make this work. So, though, um, that I think it's really interesting. She had seen a sex strike in action. I'm obviously not recommending it as an alternative to women having political power. I'd rather women had political power. Um, but given that women can have political power and Brett Kavanaugh can still be on the Supreme Court, I'm honestly running out of ideas. Frankly, I'm getting to the point where I'll suggest just about anything, including digging a big tiger pit outside his house. So I'm actually entirely in favour of the big tiger pit now I've thought of it. I am prepared to invest in tigers. Is it unkind to the tiger? Wait. We're going to have to think this through more, Sentinelli, and I haven't given it enough consideration. So I think what's really interesting, though, is that it's not the only, or indeed, I think, the most important sex strike the women have conducted this century. That was about four years ago in Colombia, in South America. And what's really interesting about that, I think, is this. These women were in a rural area. They were in a village absolutely miles from nowhere. You're going to have to imagine what that's like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Made myself laugh, that hardly ever happens. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yesterday, my friend Helen referred to a field as cow infested. And I can't, cannot stop laughing about it today. I had to stop my run so I could laugh about the phrase earlier. I'm cow infested, it's just magnificent. She is so from London. <laughs> well done, her. So. These women lived in a village in the middle of nowhere in Colombia and they went on a sex strike because what they wanted and what they couldn't get from their politicians was new roads. And the reason that they wanted new roads is because they lived more than two days away from the nearest hospital and they were dying in childbirth. And I think it is the most extraordinary thing that what starts out as a joke made by a small C but nonetheless small C conservative comedian two and a half thousand years ago goes right the way through time. You can perform it the same way. Until, the, until 1918, and then gradually it shifts and it shifts and it shifts, and suddenly it becomes an act of women empowering themselves because they're still being ignored in a country where women still don't have any rights. I find that absolutely incredible um, and heartening and strange. So I have now talked for literally 20 minutes about one thing, which I'm afraid really minimizes how much you get to hear about other things, but I'm gonna let you choose if that's all right. Or you can do more staring, because I love it when you do that. <laughs> um, so you can have, um, I, this talk is ostensibly based, although very, very loosely now, um, because I've, this book came out in 2010 and I've long since lost interest in the things that I'd performed. So it's all changed as time's gone on. But anyway, let's uh, fix that. Um, but you can have um, stories from chapters on politics. We've kind of done politics, so you can have more politics if you want. Uh, but anyway, you have had some. Um, uh, I should know this by now, really. Uh, the law. Oh, the law. Um, Religion, philosophy, women, oh, I love doing women. Um, the town, the country, and what difference it makes where you live. Um, culture, high art and low art, I don't like those labels myself, but there they are. And money, those are your options. Do you want them one more time and then you can choose? We've probably got time for like three or if I'm fast, and I'm fast, uh, we could maybe get through four, so long as you don't have any questions. Remember how I said there wouldn't be questions because I always just blast through it like a narcissist. Sorry about that. Um, so those are your options. More politics if you want them. The law, philosophy, religion, women, the town, the country, where we live and what that impacts on how we live. Uh, culture, high art, low art, money, and is that it? That's it. Well done, everyone. What do you want? Money. money. We'll end on money. Something else. Town and country. Town and country. No one ever chooses. Good. 
Philosophy, yep, and one more. We've already got that. Well, we'll do women for the back. Yeah, all right, we'll we'll, so we'll start, with, we'll start with philosophy, and then we'll move to women, and then we'll do... What else did I just agree to? Town and country, and then we'll end on money, yes? Are you on top of this? One of you's on top of this. Leah, are you on top of this? Leah's on top of it. Yeah, it's all fine. So, uh, philosophy, I said we'd start with. So, I think it's a really interesting idea, isn't it, that philosophers, uh, our notion of philosophy is now that it's basically someone with a big beard, brackets, usually male, it's not obligatory, um, wandering along the street, being slightly disconnected from the world. And that's not how it should be, right? Our idea of philosophers is entirely dictated, I think, truthfully, by Monty Python. I genuinely do. <laughs> That's it's, it's both the philosopher's song and it's that football match between the Germans and the Greeks. And you go, yeah, that's all it took. And we just went, yes, that's what philosophers are. So I'm making a small defence for Aristotle, who was, at the time that he lived, perhaps the only human person to know literally everything that could be known, pretty much. Right? His interests were so diverse. Physics, metaphysics, ethics, um, uh, zoology, for crying out loud. The man had, do you know this? Do you know why he knows so much about bees? He knows a lot about bees. And in the ancient world, people have unexpectedly taken a turn into zoology. I did not see this coming. <laughs> You're an interesting influence, Cornwall. So there's, people know limited amounts of things about bees in the ancient world. Um, I'm astonished I'm talking to you about this. I'm technically scared of bees. I don't like bugs. Um, but even so, one of the things people think about bees in the ancient world is that they spontaneously occur near the corpse of a, say, cow. Right? Now, feel free to give me that slightly perplexed expression. That is legitimate. But the reason people think it is because you don't necessarily go, oh, the corpse of a rotting cow. I should go and look at that. You stand at a reasonable distance away. right? And if you do that, what happens is that you see a cloud of, I guess they're flies of some sort. Look at me living in the city. Um, emanating from the body, of, like on the can of um, golden syrup. Mmm, golden syrup. Mm. Um, so, though, and so they thought that was how bees were created. I was going to say invented, but <laughs> that's probably not the verb I'm looking for. Um, and so that's what people assumed for ages. Anyway, it's a, I'm not saying it's the most sensible thing, but it's kind of, as these things go, you can sort of see the logic to the, to the mistake. Do you know what I mean? It's like um, for the Romans. Ah, oh, this is a lovely fact. For the Romans, this is where the word to lick into shape comes from, the phrase to lick into shape comes from. It comes from Suetonius's life of Virgil. And he writes about Virgil, the great epic Roman poet Virgil. Um, he says that Virgil used to throw down a lot of lines in the morning and then he would spend the afternoon cutting them back, editing heavily. So he creates in the morning, edits in the afternoon. And he says, like a she-bear, like a mother bear, he would lick it into shape. Right? And the reason that the Romans thought that a mother bear licked something into shape is because the Romans were extremely pragmatic people and they simply were too sensible to get very near a bear that had just given birth to a baby bear. And from a distance, like a baby bear, which is covered in kind of gum, I guess, and bear matter, is going to be licked by its mother into clean bear form, right? But from a distance, it just looks like a sort of small, and they thought it was giving shape, form to the mass of bear stuff rather than cleaning it. That's not a stupid conclusion to draw, right? It's so lovely, the idea that that's how you get a new bear. And that anybody who wanted to correct it is like, well, I should go and check, <laughs> never seen again. <laughs> like in the film Grizzly Man, that, oh my God, have you seen the film Grizzly Man? It's a crazy, I think he's Canadian, I can't remember, but anyway, um, suffice it to say that it was made, it was finished by a different filmmaker from the person who began it. Um, <laughs> And the person who began it, a sample quote from the first half of the film is, I can hear what the bear is thinking. <laughs> I'm not sure you can, sir, because what the bear's thinking is, mm. <laughs> and if you could hear what the bear was thinking, you'd still be here and the bear would have eaten a fish, which I think is what bears eat. I, to be honest, I think they eat honey. <laughs> but that, I think we've established, is because I live in the city. So, really, what were we trying to do? Philosophy. I knew there was something. So. Aristotle is much more pragmatic about these things. So what he does, and bear in mind the Roman bear thing is after him, but not everybody reads Aristotle, that's the rules. He gets a um, hive made out of mother of pearl, very, very thin mother of pearl, so thin that you can see through it. And that's how he can document the behavior of bees in a hive so brilliantly. He can literally see them. He makes one mistake, which is to think that the queen bee is a king bee. And that is not a stupid mistake for a man living in his patriarchal times, is it? I don't think so. So um, he also tells us a fantastic story about a, a much earlier philosopher, a man named Thales. Um, and he tells us this story to um, reassure us that you don't have to be, um, if you're a philosopher, you don't have to be sort of airy-fairy and not focusing. He tells us that um, Thales was so smart 
that he could identify what the weather was going to do for months ahead because he checked the stars and could guess what the weather was going to be. And one year, one winter, he anticipated that there was going to be a bumper olive harvest the following autumn. And so he bought up all the olive presses in his neighbourhood. And then when the bumper olive harvest came around, as predicted by his investigations of the night sky, he rented them out at a vast sum and made a huge profit. And Aristotle tells us the story to say, philosophers could be rich if they want, they just choose to have this sort of high-minded life. Um, he doesn't tell us the story of Thales, who's so busy looking at the stars that he also falls down a hole. But <laughs> these things happen. Perhaps the most famous... Um, philosopher from the ancient world is Socrates, I think, and that's because he is so beautifully celebrated by his uh, pupil, Plato. Um, Plato, in case you're wondering, if it doesn't sound like a very Greek name, it doesn't sound like a very Greek name, does it? Greek names generally end in Eos or Socrates, for example. Um, but Plato is a nickname. Plato's real name was Aristocles. Um, and Plato, Platon um, in Greek means broad, wide. Right? And scholars have spent a very long time explaining that probably means he had a very broad forehead because he was so clever. People sort of thought that about him. Or that he was very kind of stockly, but he was very good at wrestling, apparently. It's like you can dress it up any way you want. Plato has basically been known by us for 2,400 years as fatso. That is just true. <laughs> His actual name, Aristocles. Anyway, um, he writes these incredible dialogues which feature Socrates as a character. Socrates wrote nothing down. He prided himself on writing nothing down. He saw himself as not a teacher. He differentiated himself between um, him and the sophists who were uh, teachers of philosophy and rhetoric and so on at that time. But they charged enormous fees. Socrates always refuses to do that. He doesn't say that he's a teacher. He says he knows that he knows nothing. That's the great paradox of Socrates. His great wisdom is, I know that I know nothing, right? And so he is a very brilliant man, but he doesn't document anything. It's interesting, I think, that two, the two men who have most efficiently shaped Western thought without any possible quibble, and even from me, who was a godless soul, the two men who have most entirely shaped Western thought wrote not a single word, and that is Socrates and Jesus. Isn't that interesting? They're entirely, we only have their words through other people, filtered through other people's ideas. Who knows where Plato begins? Are you all right, Patrick? Are you okay? You are talking back, but I'm worried about you because you seem very... Oh, no. I'd heard that about it. I haven't. I don't. <laughs> so, in, in which I once again issue slurs against people who have yet to come on stage. I'm a terrible person. So, Socrates is put to death at the age of 70. I always like to mention this because um, people think that nobody makes it to old age in the ancient world because life expectancy is 35. Right, but life expectancy is 35 because everybody dies young. It's not because there aren't any old people. Sophocles is 84 when he dies and he's written 150 plays. We've only got seven because the early Christian church didn't like us having the rest. Um, but Socrates makes it to 70 and he's put to death. And he's put to death on three counts. Um, one of Asabea, uh, well, I suppose in a way they're all Asabea. Impiety um, is the translation. He is three, on three counts of that, though, which is one, disrespecting the old gods, two, introducing new gods, and three, corrupting the young. And I think it's really interesting that, um, number one, uh, Socrates' um, final speech in court, his apology, his apologia, um, concludes with him going off to be, he'll drink hemlock, that's what he's going to be um, murdered with. Um, it concludes with him saying, it's time for us to leave. He's talking to a jury of 500 people. They have huge juries in the ancient world. See, we're not doing law. You're still getting a bit of law. It's all fine. Huge juries of like a 500 or sometimes even 1,000 men will stand on a case. It'd be very hard to bribe them, I think we can all agree. Though on the other hand, it would take a very long time for Henry Fonda to change the verdict. So, <laughs> a topical joke? No, I don't think so. No, that's fine though. And so, topical compared with the ancient world, that will do. So, um, he concludes his speech with the words, uh, gentlemen, it's time for us to leave, you to live and me to die, and which of us has the better prospect ahead? Only God can know. Now, if you're being put to death for disrespecting the gods, that's a pretty classy way to leave, isn't it? My God. Introducing the new gods is because he has a daimonion. He talks about it in a couple of Plato's dialogues. A daimonion means a little demon, um, but not the way we would mean demon. A daimon, um, and also not the way Philip Pullman would mean demon, I realise, because he spells it the same way. But anyway, um, it's like a, a voice inside your head is what Socrates is talking about. Now, there are those who would point out that hearing voices has always been a dangerous thing, whether it's Joan of Arc um, or, or whether it is now or whether it is Socrates. Hearing voices has always been something that other people fear, although an enormous number of us do, about 10% or something, hear voices in their heads just in case you were feeling sad or worried about it. Um, the most of us don't find that, that it's a ruinous relationship, but for every, anyway, it's a separate issue. Um, so Socrates hears this, has this kind of inner voice, but it is always telling him off. It never says, go you, Socrates, you did some excellent reasoning there. 
Check out your logic. Excellent work. That never happens. It only ever steps in to tell him not to do something and says, you know, don't obey the 30, when, the 30 tyrants when they take over Athens at the end of the Peloponnesian War and go and kill, you know, some guy they've turned against. Don't do that. And then when he doesn't do that, it doesn't go, well done you for not committing murder. No, it doesn't happen. So he has this inner voice and maybe that is the problem. The main problem, of course, is that he corrupts the young. And tyrants throughout history have been vexed by corrupting the young, right? It is always a, a charge laid at the hands of people who won't fall into line. And my favourite um, of these is uh, under Stalin, there was a tenor singer named Vadim Kozin. Do you know him? Do you know his name? Um, Mark Allman did a uh, record of his songs. Uh, he was a, a sort of roving gypsy tenor under Stalinist Russia. And at one point, he was so incredibly popular with the ordinary people of Russia that Beria, Stalin's chief of police, played, of course, amazingly by Simon Russell Beale in Death of Stalin last year, which if you haven't seen, my God, it's good. Um, but and Simon Russell Beale, it's so weird because normally when someone gives that kind of performance, it's all in the eyes. He just shutters his eyes and does it all from here until the crucial moment, which I'm not going to give away, and then his eyes come into play. It is it's, it's an astonishing film. I would have given him the Oscar for it like that. So they didn't let me vote. Let that be a lesson to them. It would have been better. Who won the Oscar for Best Picture, uh, for Best Actor last year? So, uh, Sam Rockwell won it, didn't he, for Best Supporting Actor, rather, for um, Three Billboards. Oh, God, it was a miles better performance than that. Everyone, go and watch Death of Stalin instead. It's much better. It doesn't have that slightly silly plot twist where he overhears the thing in the cafe. And oh, I suppose that's how that crime's being solved. Is it? Anyway, can't bear a stupid plot twist. So. See, this is what would have happened if we'd done culture. I would have just got really cross about bad plot twists. There's one thing I can't bear, cheap surprise. So, I like an expensive surprise. Um, really, somebody must remember why we're talking about this. Corrupting the young, Vadim Kozin. So, Beria says to Vadim Kozin, um, he says, you should compose a song for Stalin because his birthday is coming up. And Kozin, in an act of, let's say, courage, but possibly stupidity, um, <laughs> says that the subject of Stalin is not suitable for the tenor voice. <laughs> and finds himself sent to a gulag, obviously, um, but under not the charge of being mean about Stalin and refusing to sing a song about him, but corrupting the young. It is what is always laid at the door of people who tyrants don't like. So, um, do we have time to do a tiny bit of, should we sneak a bit of godlessness into philosophy? Sort of fits, doesn't it? Somebody did ask for religion, I remember it happening. So, shall we have, shall we sneak it in? Shall we? Should we do Protagoras? Yeah, we should, there you go. You, with your entirely anachronistic Christian values, have won the day, madam. Yes. Right. Well, in the spirit of you, let's have something from the time that Christians exist, even if this is technically about Judaism, shall we? Instead of Protagoras, the earliest um, agnostic, and therefore it's starting again. Um, so, a really long time ago, at the very start of my career, I was doing a festival somewhere, and um, like for people who are unfeasibly rich, and I got some kind of fancy ticket, even fancier than a golden ticket. Sorry to ruin the golden tickets that you've got. But they were carted around the um, site on like a little tractor. And it's like, like this wasn't Marie Antoinette-ish enough. Do you know what I mean? Let's find you a, some ringlets for your lamb, Jesus. Um, and then <laughs> every time they went past, the tent where spoken word stuff was happening. It was like the noisiest tractor. It's, like, it's, not, it's not enough, is it, that you can't be bothered to walk somewhere. You've got to ruin it for everybody else with your rich, stupid ways. So why was I cross about that? It was just a general sort of class <laughs> irritation, wasn't it? Um, well, let's do the Josephus problem, shall we? Shall we? Right, so the Romans don't persecute Christians. I know it's one of the things that everybody knows about the Romans, but it hardly ever happens. It's incredibly sporadic, and when it does happen, it's incredibly, you know, it's intensive, and then it's, but it's really short-lived. And it's, it always really bothers me, because there are two things that everyone knows about the Romans. Number one, maybe three things. There's three things that everyone knows about the Romans. Number one is that all gladiators say, those about to die salute you, which is not true, right? There is no evidence anywhere of gladiators ever saying this. There is one story in Suetonius where now Macarii, or uh, sea battlers, because the Romans used to sometimes flood their arenas. The word arena comes from the word harina, meaning sand, right? The thing that they fight on. They used to flood them and then conduct replica sea battles on them. Fun, fun, fun! Anyway, it is now Macarii. Um, it comes from the Greek, meaning sea uh, uh, boat battle. Uh, now is a boat. And, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get an exam on this. Aren't you? No, you're not. <laughs> Aren't you? You're not. Um, and it's now Macarii in the story of Suetonius in his life of Claudius. Uh, that's uh, Derek Jacobi, for those of you who like to do your emperor's, the Iclavdiv's route. <laughs> Completely legitimate. Don't worry about that. I have no problem with you doing it. I'm doing it myself. You go, Tiberius, is that George Baker? Yes, it is. Inspector Wexford? Yes. Yes, it's Inspector Wexford, Emperor. Yes, that's right. Although, of course, everyone always forgets that Nero was Biggins. Everyone always forgets. 
they just forget because he hasn't got the glasses. You can't remember. It's extraordinary how much it just wipes itself from our memories. So I'm honestly telling the truth. It is Biggins. If you go back and check, I have not made this up. It seems like I would have, but I haven't. So uh, the, really, somebody must remember how we got to here. The Josephus problem where we, oh yeah, no. So. Uh, in the life of Claudius, Jesus, even by my standards, this is... Uh, in the life of Claudius, uh, Suetonius tells us that the Naumachari, the sea battlers, refuse to fight. They say, those about to die, salute you. Te moratori salutant. And Claudius says, outknown or not. And they go, hey, great, we don't have to die. The emperor said we didn't have to die. Did you hear that? Or not. Known, he said, we don't have to... And Claudius, uh, Suetonius tells us this story because it's so unusual and because it's so humiliating. Claudius, the emperor, has to go and plead with slaves to die because otherwise there'll be a riot. Riots happen at the games all the time, and sometimes they're banned and because of it and so on. There's one in Pompeii, just about 20 years before Pompeii. Um, and uh, <laughs> sort of the full technical term. Um, and uh, it's so terrible, they're banned from having games for 10 years because so many people are killed. It's proper football hooliganism of its time. Um, but that's the one thing that everyone knows that's not true. The second thing everyone knows is Julius Caesar's last words, which are? Absolute nonsense, made up by Shakespeare. I know, right? Fucking fibber. Fibber, that's what he is. But uh, Julius Caesar's last words weren't even in Latin, they were in Greek. Kaisu technon, he says, you too, my child, to Brutus. Now that sounds okay, doesn't it? Except when you know that he'd been having an affair with Brutus's mother for years, right? So much, I know, look how much better it is than Shakespeare made you think. That Midland charlatan, I can't bear it. I can't bear, look how cool an Oedipal it is. People, it was rumoured that Brutus was his actual child. He almost certainly wasn't. The timings just don't fit at all. But he was basically a stepfather. I know, right? It drives me mad. Anyway, and the third, the third thing that everyone knows, which, they, which isn't the case, is the total persecution of Christians. That basically, from the minute that Jesus is crucified, which is something, by the way, which happened at one point in a Roman battle um, elsewhere, to 5,000 men in a single day. It is not an uncommon punishment in the ancient world. I'm not saying that makes it okay. I'm merely saying it's not unusual, um, but not in the Tom Jones sense. Um, and... Uh, there's one terrible, it doesn't matter, we haven't got time to go down the sidetracks of uh, crucifixion today. Um, but there is, no, literally, we don't have time. Um, so uh, there's this sort of suggestion that then for the next 300 years, Christians are persecuted all the time under every emperor across the empire. And then at the end of that time, somehow, there's so many of them, they can become the state religion. It's like, well, that's just that the, the Roman world is not full of lions going, oh, I can't eat another. Oh, I'm stuffed. Oh, no more Christians, please. It's too much. Just let me have some. Let me have a heathen. <laughs> I'm exhausted. Um, it just doesn't happen. You get persecution under Nero, which is derided by Tacitus, who's not a fan of the Christians. He sees them as a sort of um, Eastern uh, cult, which they are by the standards of the time, remember. Um, the bit in um, uh, Life of Brian, when they're all like, no, I'm the Judean people's popular friend, it is exactly like that. First century Judean politics is exactly, that is basically a documentary. Um, <laughs> and it re honestly, um, and so it happens under Nero, it happens under Domitian, it happens under Septimius Severus, Diocletian, it happens under a few emperors' persecution, but it's incredibly sporadic and it doesn't happen that much. So, um, they do, however, persecute the Jews in the first century. In the first century CE, i.e. the first century after Jesus has been alive, um, there is the most extraordinary battles in Judea. We are unbelievably lucky that we have a source who's not Roman on this, Josephus, who was Jewish, um, and a, a sort of Jewish prince who became friends with the royal family, the imperial family of Rome, with Titus particularly, um, who had a fling with his sister, with Josephus' sister Berenike, um, or we would say Berenice now, but Berenike is her name then. Um, and, uh, and so Josephus, very unusually a non-Roman source, Josephus tells us of this incredible moment where he becomes co-opted by the Romans, right? in which he and his men, there are you know, 60, 70, 80 of them, get trapped in a cave on the side of a mountain. And the Romans are outside and they say, I paraphrase very slightly, come out, come out wherever you are. And <laughs> Josephus says, well, I'd better go out and then you know, they'll let the rest of you go. And that seems like quite a heroic gesture, don't we think? Seems quite heroic. And his men go, if you do that, we'll kill you. And he goes, okay, new plan. Um, and they have a little think, and someone says, we should all kill ourselves. I told you it was like Life of Brian. We should all kill ourselves. That's the best thing to do. And then someone else points out, everyone agrees, and then someone else points out that there is, in the words of Josephus, a darker part of Hades reserved for those who do violence to themselves, right? Suicide is very wrong in the Jewish faith. 
So everyone went, oh, we can't do that. Oh, what are we going to do? So they sit around a bit longer. The Romans outside, tap, tap. Um, <laughs> not tap, tap, they haven't got watches. Um, <laughs> they sit and, they, and everyone has a little think and they ponder it a bit more. And then somebody comes up with a plan. And the plan is this. They stand in a circle. And what will happen is that person, let's say A, is going to stab person, let's say B, who is like three people over. And then before he does that, person B will have stabbed person C. He's three guys over. And before that happens, he'll stab person D, who's three guys over, and so on and so on. And then they'll go around again, and then they'll go around again, and then they'll go around again, and everyone will be dead except one guy, and he will kill himself because only then one person will have to enter the darker part of Hades. Everyone else will have died in battle, and no one will know who the last guy is going to be, so it won't be unfair. Ta-da! <laughs> and that is what they decide to do. <laughs> and what's extraordinary about this is that they stand in a circle and guy A kills guy B, kills guy C, kills guy D, kills guy... And it goes round and round and round and round and the last man standing is Josephus and he walks out and gives himself up. <laughs> and at no point does he go, check out the maths! <laughs> check out the sums! I win! He just doesn't... He says it was either providence or, you know, chance. It is not either. It is, I'll tell you what it is. It's good maths. And this, it, the Josephus problem is still done now as a computing problem in which you have to work out the number of people and the interval of killings in order to be the last man standing. It's one of the very few times when classicists and uh, computer scientists get to hang out and talk about a cool thing. I say cool, none of us has any lunch money. So, because it was stolen by other cooler kids. Keep up, come on. Um, right, I said I would do... What else did I say I would do? We said town and country, women... We'll do a tiny bit of town and country, and then we'll do, that's what we'll do. So, um, what, would you, what would you prefer, town or country? country? Ooh, interesting. It was much more of a divide than I thought. Well, let's do, let's do the town mouse and the country mouse, shall we? Which is in Horace. Oh, the story's in Horace. It's in one of Horace's satires. They're not satires the way that um, you might think of them, insofar as they are much less snarky um, than, say, juvenile satires, which are like the neat bile of the world's angriest man distilled into perfect verse. Um, <laughs> Uh, God, I love Juvenile. I shouldn't love Juvenile because he's a horrible, horrible person, but my God, he was a good comedian. So, though, um, in Horace's satire, he tells the story, or one of his friends tells the story, technically, where they're um, having a lovely drink uh, at the end of the day. Horace loves the country. The only thing Horace has ever wanted all his life is a lovely pile in the country to retire to, and he gets it. And he has, has this incredibly um, low-demand life. He doesn't need a you know, mansion. He just wants somewhere nice with nice wine and friends who live nearby so they can eat beans and bacon and drink wine. It is a very low-grade retirement that he wants. It's the only thing he wants. He has an incredibly happy old age. I love Horace. I was made to read him as a teenager. And you shouldn't read him as a teenager, huh? Because you're like, who cares, old man? Um, you should read Catullus as a teenager, who's all like, burning for love. Um, and then you should read Horace when you're old and he seems more reasonable um, and not boring. But um, they tell us the story of the town mouse and the country mouse. That's where it comes from. And what I love about this story is a tiny linguistic thing, which I will share with you, and it is this. So I'm sure you know the story. The, the town mouse, who is all snooty, like me, comes to stay in the country, like I have, um, and he stays with his country cousin, who is a lovely country mouse. And extra brilliant bonus loveliness is that Latin is almost never cute. In fact, Latin is never cute. Latin is the least cute and adorable language of any language apart from possibly German that you could ever hope to find. It's so guttural, it's so solid, and it's so practical. And there is nothing adorable about Latin except for the fact that in Latin, town mouse is urbanusmus. <laughs> and country mouse, Rusticusmus is <laughs> <laughs> the most adorable thing that's ever happened. Rusticusmus. Oh. So the Urbanusmus goes to stay with his cousin, the Rusticusmus. <laughs> Um, and he is very snooty about what the Rusticusmus lives off, uh, which is vetch. I had to look up what vetch was. Apparently, it's a sort of weed. Uh, you probably all know that. Yeah, we know that. We live in the country. We've seen vetch. Um, and people eat it when it's an emergency, but you shouldn't eat it otherwise because it's not nice for us, but ruminants like it. I've done all the research. Um, I do know what a ruminant is. It's a cow. Shut up. <laughs> Infested. I'm just saying. <laughs> Still funny. Um, so... So sorry. So the town mouse turns up and stays with the country mouse and he is snooty about what they eat, which is oats and veg. Um, and he says, come and stay with me in the city. Come and stay with me in the city and you can have delicious sweet meats. That's what we have where I live. It's lovely. And the country mouse is very unsure about leaving his little country kind of hideaway. Uh, and he's persuaded by the Urbanusmus um, because the Urbanusmus says, it's so brilliant. One of the most famous 
phrase is in all of Latin literature is from Horace. And the reason that it's famous is partly because it was already famous before the film, but it's partly because of the film and because of Robin Williams' amazing performance in the film of Dead Poets Society. And so Horace is famous for carpe diem, right, which people consistently mistranslate as seize the day, but let's go down that, let's die on that hill another day. Um, Carpe means um, not to seize, actually, but to, cape means to seize. It's a mis anyway. It means to wear away, to use up, right? So um, it always really bothers me that um, people kind of use Horace as a reason to. It's like you should go bungee jumping, seize the day. Horace does not want you to go bungee jumping. <laughs> Horace, let's remind ourselves, is having some nice Falernian wine with his nice friends while eating some beans in the country. That is what Horace would like you to. He'd like you to use up your day, wear it out. He's not telling you to go and do some crazy extreme sport. He's telling you to just chill is what he's telling you. Carpe diem is what, anyway, that's what you should be doing. But in order to say, this is some years before that poem is published, right? This is maybe 10 years earlier. People have quibbled a lot about the order of writing of Horace, but it's probably about 10 years before that the Town Mouse Country Mouse story is written. And how brilliantly, the Urbanusmus says to the Rusticusmus, you should come and stay with me in the city, he says. Carpe diem, use the road, seize the way. <laughs> Isn't that great? Of course, the country mouse goes to stay, and in the city, he finds these delicious sweetmeats, but as I'm sure you know how this story ends, um, there are giant mastiffs, um, and they pursue him, and he's terrified, and he realizes he runs all the way back to the country. He's so afraid. It's not worth it as far as he's concerned. The delicious sweetmeats of the city are not worth the perils of the city, and he is happy on his diet of vetch. Um, so it's a lovely story in which the mice conveniently think exactly what Horace thinks, which is my very favorite kind of story. Um, if you want to know more about the city, we don't have time, but... Um, I'll give you one tiny moment because I like it so much since I mentioned Juvenal. Um, Juvenal talks amazingly about the city. His views on the, his views on the countryside, I have to tell you, are pretty colourful too. Uh, but his views on the city, on Rome where he lives, are absolutely astonishing. And his description of how dangerous it is to live in a city is amazing. I, had to, I was recording a programme on Juvenal the day after Grenfell happened and I had to cut a chunk of it because it was so accurate on, on fires and tower blocks. I, I had to cut the whole five minute block the day of recording because we just couldn't, I, just, I couldn't say it and the audience couldn't have heard it. That's how prescient Juvenal is on these matters. It's just incredible. He talks about the guy on the ground floor getting all his stuff out while the people on the top floor are about to die. Tunescus, he says, you don't even know it. It's absolutely devastating. But he is incredible on the dangers of city life. And one of the things that he really resents is dodgy landlords profiteering off poor people. He says, you go and move into an apartment block, an insula, um, from which we get the word insula, islandy, because the Romans build their blocks, their city blocks, like the Americans do, right? So a road, a road, a road, a road, and then a block. And they're supposed to only be five floors, but they get built higher, and then they are dangerous. And after the great fire of Romans 64, Nero brings in rules to make them less high and for them not to, to be clad in something other than wood. Um, and people aren't allowed to cook, but of course they do, because it's cold in the winter. And, um, but uh, magnificently, because Tacitus is the person who tells us about this. These are all really sensible city planning ideas. Um, and Tacitus instead focuses on the fact that Nero builds himself a big new palace called the Domus Aurea, the Golden House. And he begins the chapter on this with, in parts of Rome unfilled with Nero's new palace. <laughs> Saucer of milk for the historian. But Juvenal tells us this incredible, this incredible scene of somebody going to move into this apartment which looks safe but isn't safe because it's incredibly shakily built and he says the landlord has texit hiatum he has papered over the cracks it just comes straight through into english because you cannot beat juvenile when he's right doesn't mean he's right very often certainly not ethically ever but my god he could turn a phrase um he is also responsible for why would you go to dinner and be humiliated by your patron he says why would you uh, suffer inoriam cani the insult of dinner isn't that great? I wish I had ever written the insult of dinner. I can't say it without being happy. So, right, women, we've got virtually no time. This is entirely your fault, Cornwall. And then we'll go to money. Um, so, well, we already did Lysistratus, so at least we've had that. We'll do Ariapaita. Ah, because we never get stories about nice women and Roman writers. Because Roman writers generally are, well, in fact, almost entirely, uh, they are upper-class men because those are the only people who have time to write. Right, and also have the education to write. If you have a job, you don't have time to write. It's in fact exactly how it's going back to. Now people can't make a living from writing anymore. It's just becoming a, a lovely thing, for, a hobby for rich people to do. Uh, there was just two, 200 years where the rest of us could write. No, no not anymore. Thank you, thank you. Um, but though, um, we just don't get the, those kinds of um, stories very often because what we get is lots of stories from, say, Tacitus or Suetonius um, about terrible, terrible women, i.e. the mothers and wives and daughters of emperors. 
because that's what they're interested in talking about. And those women are always seen as scandalous because any time they do anything, it's wrong. Right. See if this sounds familiar at all to you now. But I think it's a really interesting... I've just been part of a project to reclaim Bess of Hardwick. Do you know where I mean? In Derbyshire? It's been really good fun. Um, because she has been entirely monstered by history as, you know, this terrible, acquisitive shrew um, who, you know, stole money and did all these things. And actually, and a termagant um, and all of those things. But actually, she seems to have been, when you go to her letters, she seems to have been incredibly kind and thoughtful. And she's just been monstered because she had the audacity to not be meek. Um, and I would say the same is possibly true of Agrippina, the mother of Nero, brackets Christopher Biggins. Um, <laughs> um, because we're always told, we're told by Tacitus and by Suetonius that she's a serial killer, pretty much, that she slaughters everybody so that her son, Biggins, um, can get into power, um, and that, she's a, that, that she hires a woman named Lacusta to be a sort of um, private poisoner, um, that Britannicus, who is Claudius' natural son rather than his adopted son, Nero, um, is poisoned. It's one of the most brilliant poisonings, to be fair, if it's true. It's one of the most brilliant poisonings. How do you poison somebody who has a taster, right? How do you poison somebody whose every food and drink is tasted before he gets hold of it? I'll tell you how. I will tell you how. And then you will like that water less. This is how. <laughs> what you do is you hand him a drink and the taster takes it and tastes it because they don't get to go, ow, it's hot, I don't want to. They're a slave. Right? Your job is maybe being poisoned. You don't get much say in the matter. He tastes the drink. It's fine. He doesn't keel over. He gives it to Britannicus. He takes the drink, tastes it. It's too hot. He puts the cold water in. That's where the poison is. And that's where he is. I know, right? <laughs> um, also, uh, I think Lacoste is, uh, if not inspired by um, an earlier poisoning in which somebody is poisoned who never eats anything um, that's uh, prepared in case it's poisoned. And they paint the poison onto the fruit on the tree. <laughs> I know. You'd think all the dead birds around would have given it away. <laughs> tweet, tweet. Oh, no, obviously not. Uh, perhaps you scoop up the dead bird and I don't know. Do you need a spade for I don't. You probably don't. That's the only mime I had to hand, so I'm sorry. That's what you get. So, uh, but I, I would argue, have argued, that Agrippina might have been the best emperor the Romans never had. Right. She was incredibly good with money. Nero bankrupts himself and ends up having to commit suicide. Um, and uh, in 68, when we've revolted, well done, Britain, um, and uh, everyone else is revolting, the peasants are all revolting, um, he is eventually uh, forced from power, and he realises he's going to have to kill himself, and he's helped by his secretary, Epaphroditus, which is especially miserable, isn't it? If you're going to have to kill yourself, you don't want your secretary to be there helping out. <laughs> Could you file this when I'm done? No, it's fine. Um, <laughs> And uh, so he stabs himself at that point. And my, his, some of my very favourite last words, qualis artifex pereo, what an artist, but still I die. <laughs> totally going to say that when my time comes. And, and that'll be it. Um, and I like to think I'll just do the last bit. Although I don't know how to spell it. So one of the very few nice stories, really, one of the very few nice stories we have about women is Aria Piter. And we are given her story by Pliny, amongst others. Pliny the Younger, uh, prolific letter writer, unbelievably boring man. Um, and uh, although saved by Vesuvius erupting because he stays at home to read Livy. So his uncle, Pliny the Elder, the naturalist, goes off to see Vesuvius erupting. He goes, do you want to come with me? And he goes, no, no, I'm here reading Livy. And uh, that's how he lives to, so, so Livy, lifesaver. Um, one life. Um, nearly killed me at school, doesn't count. Um, but though, Ariopita's story comes to us from Pliny and he tells us this. Ariopita is unbelievably brave. Her husband, Pitus, is uh, about to be convicted of treason, something which happens to a lot of rich men in the time of the emperors. Um, and if you are convicted, then you'll be put to death or forced to commit suicide, but you'll be put to death and your property will be taken and given to the person who accused you. So a much better thing to do is to kill yourself before the conviction happens because you're going to die anyway it's just this it's the only sensible thing to do it seems like people are always killing themselves in ancient rome it's not because they all listened to kurt cobain and it all went that way it's because they're trying to save the estate for the future generations and aria Pita's husband Pitus, is uh, about to be convicted and they both know it and so he has to kill himself and he can't bring himself to do it because it's frightening right and aria Pita, we are told by pliny takes the knife from her husband and she drives it into her own breast and dies with the words you see Pitus, it does not hurt what a hero, I'm just saying. So obviously, no one's ever heard of her. I wonder why that might be. Oh, no, wait. No, I don't. Um, <laughs> but you'll note that even heroic women don't die of old age. That's just the way of the ancient world, I'm afraid. So we have virtually no time, but we're going to do money even so. I told you there wouldn't be time for questions, and I said this would happen. I said I would wang on, and you'd end up with no time. Exactly what's happened. So money. It's incredibly hard to calculate between the ancient world and the modern world. Um, how money works, because generally now, when we want to find out if somebody is in touch with things, we ask them what the price of a pint of milk is, 
right? I would never know that. I don't drink milk. Uh, but there it is. I know how much Diet Coke is. That's the main thing. Um, but the people in ancient Rome wouldn't have known it either because they didn't drink lattes, right? Milk wasn't a big part of their diet. A much better way to try and judge money, and even this is really vague through time, is carbohydrates. Because everybody, apart from crazy people now, eat carbohydrates, right? Through history, everybody has eaten carbohydrates. Are you eating carbohydrates right now? You are an absolute model to me. Well done. Well done. An apple is carbs. Mmm, delicious carbs. Um, I had a Kit Kat before we even started. I know, I'm living the dream. Um, so, though, carbohydrates, we're all eating them, apart from crazy people on the Atkins diet, and I'm just not including them, that's too bad. He weighed like some ridiculous, like 260 pounds when he died or something. The Atkins diet didn't even work for Atkins. Um, I'm just saying. And then his doctor, who was a shareholder in his business, and his wife, shareholder, well, widow, shareholder in his business, were like, yeah, he fell and hit his head, and then he went to hospital and retained water. Yeah, oh, do me a favor. The man was absolutely freaking enormous. That is not from drinking water while in a coma. Don't be silly. So, carbs is a good way of measuring money through time, right? And so, let's say really roughly that you could buy two loaves of bread in ancient Rome in the first century for one sesterce. I reckon you could probably buy two loaves of bread now for about a pound fifty. I am obviously talking about regular bread and not fancy poilin sourdough from Waitrose, right? If that's what you want, too bad, you can't have it. Although I did once say this on the radio and I couldn't use the word poilin because it's a brand name and I would have been in trouble with the BBC. And somebody wrote in and said, how dare you suggest that sourdough is an elitist bread? <laughs> um, <laughs> And so I wrote back with a news story that Poilin sourdough bread was retailing at which was the most expensive bread available at the time in the UK, um, commercially speaking, and it retails at £7 for a half loaf. So I sent him this news story back and he said, I have no idea, I'm going to start a business. <laughs> and then sent me a recipe. Oh, best complaint ever. That's all I'm saying. If you want to write an end complaint, I'd better get at least a knitting pattern, but ideally a recipe. Either's fine, both is ideal. Um, so, uh, so, regular bread, a pound fifty, yes? And regular bread in the ancient world, a sesterce. So the richest person that we know of was a freedman named Narcissus, who was worth 400 million sesterces in the time of Claudius, brackets Derek Jacobi. Um, 600 million quid, in other words. So not even a billionaire. I only mention it because there's well over a thousand billionaires in the world now. Uh, and that was true just after the financial crisis, so probably up to about 1,200 by now. So we have a much more unequal society, in fact, than the Romans did. And I know that people will say, but they had slavery. There are more slaves in the world now than there were during the Roman Empire. I do see there are more people in the world now, but there are still also more slaves. I only mention this because, it, you know, we shouldn't just not acknowledge it when these things happen. So, though... Um, the richest person that we know about in literature, probably, is a man named Trimalchio. And Trimalchio appears in the Canar Trimalchionis, the longest chunk of uh, Petronius Satyricon. Uh, you might have seen the Fellini film of it. It's absolutely batshit bananas. What's going on? The 60s were so much weirder than ancient Rome. What's happening? Why is everyone wearing that? I don't understand. Um, and they go for dinner at Trimalchio's house, our narrator and his two friends. It's a sort of weird kind of camp pastiche of the Odyssey. Um, and it's a sort of horrific dinner party where all kinds of terrible things happen. All the food looks disgusting. The first course is like a pastry egg and you have to smash it open with a spoon that's too heavy for our hero to lift because it's made of so much silver. And he cracks it open and then there's like a disgusting embryonic bird in it. And he's like, mmm, delicious, my egg is bad. And oh no, it's a fig pecker, they're a delicacy. Um, the Romans love that. And Trimalchio tells him over dinner that he had built up a fortune. He's a freedman, an ex-slave. He'd built up a fortune of 30 million sesterces, lost it all in shipwrecks, and then built it up again after his wife Fortunata pawned her jewellery. And so this whole dinner party is basically a self-made man boasting about his money. And our snooty narrator finds the whole thing disgusting. It is not the worst dinner party that we know about in ancient Rome. That is in Seneca's On Anger. And Seneca tells us the story of a man named Vedius Pollio, who is a contemporary of Augustus. It's Brian Blessed, everyone! <laughs> I'm always so happy when this happens. Brian Blessed slash Augustus, we're told by Suetonius, in fact, doesn't like to go for many dinner parties. He doesn't like fancy dinners at all. He usually confines himself, Suetonius tells us, to just the six courses. So <laughs> he's quite abstemious. Um, and uh, Brian Blessed slash Augustus goes for dinner at the house of Vedius Pollio. And Vedius Pollio is obviously honoured to have the emperor as his guest. And because of that, he breaks out the good stuff and he makes his slaves serve wine in these incredibly ornate crystal glasses, like goblets, okay? Now, 
Roman glass is obviously, you know, some of it is you might have seen in exhibitions, some of it's quite rough and quite thick and, you know, and that's how it's survived to today because it's relatively sturdier. But the most delicate stuff, you very occasionally see a find from Herculaneum or from Pompeii. They are, it's so beautiful. It's so fragile. It's so delicate and thin. And I mean, you, we can't begin to imagine how much it must have cost to buy a set of glasses like this. But a slave boy, just a child, um, is given the job of taking wine to Augustus in this goblet and he drops it and it breaks. And Vedius Pollio is so angry with this slave that he orders that the slave boy be thrown to his pond of man-eating lampreys and eaten alive. If this sounds weirdly, eerily familiar to you, it's because it's exactly what happens in You Only Live Twice. <laughs> when Blofeld throws Helga Brandt to his pond of woman-eating piranhas, right? They are not a beautiful fish. The lamprey is not a beautiful fish either. You only keep them for eating henchmen who have displeased you. That's their sole function. Right, And the child is so frightened that he's going to be eaten alive that he begs the emperor not, and I think this is incredibly revealing, to be allowed to live because he knows that his life is worth literally less than the glass that he just broke. He just begs not to be fed alive to fish because he's frightened because he is a child. And Augustus is so horrified by Pollio's cruelty that, we are told, he orders the boy be set free and the pond be filled in, and every one of Pollio's glasses be smashed before his eyes to teach him a lesson. And the first time I told my mother that story, she said, and I quote, oh, not the glasses. <laughs> Mom, seriously, it's the life of a child. She's like, he'd be dead anyway. She has a point, of course. Um, you have been so very lovely. Um, I will sign uh, copies of Ancient Guide, if you want, or Children of Jocasta, which is the novel version of um, Oedipus, but told in perspective of women. Marvellous. Um, if you want, please keep coming back and supporting North Cornwall Book Festival. Please keep coming back and supporting Patrick, who is such a kind and lovely man that when he saw I was sad earlier this year, he invited me down here so I could stay here for a few days and relax, uh, which I never, ever do. So thank you for having me, and I'll see you again, I hope. Bye. Thank you.